So, good evening, Dharma friends. That sounds kind of loud. Oh, is it not loud enough? Some people are saying no, some people are saying yes, some people are saying perfect. Now that is the definition of dukkha. (laughs) Or of actually a Nietzsche probably, right? It's changing all the time. Okay, yes. So tonight, I actually am going to try to combine two talks that I really like. One is about the nature of dukkha. uh, And many of you know that dukkha translated, it probably doesn't have such a direct English translation, but some people have said things like suffering or um, dissatisfaction. And uh, I'm gonna talk about, uh, just give some thoughts about the dukkha of aging. I wonder why. Anna pointed out that we are an affinity group. Don't you love affinity groups? We do love affinity groups. We are an an aging affinity group. And then I want to talk about dukkha, aging dukkha, and how mindfulness transforms dukkha. That's what we want, right? We want the good news and the diagnosis and the treatment. And I want, a lot of, I want to talk a little bit too about the nature of, or the difference between pleasure and happiness. You know, there's a very big difference between, particularly in the West, in our wonderful Western world here, that many of us are consciously and unconsciously, unconsciously socialized into, the notion of happiness or pleasure is pretty different than our spiritual uh, grandfathers and grandmothers where this tradition came from. The idea of wellness and well-being is pretty different. And I want to first take a bow to all of our Asian relatives out here for preserving this tradition for us. And I'll start with the little... uh, a little saying by Wei Wu Wei. Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and of everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. <laughs> so, the very first teaching after the Buddha's awakening. In his first teaching, he presented us all with a conceptual framework for a way to understand what was going on with this mind-body process. And we all know that that was the framework of the Four Noble Truths. And, you know, it was given, he gave this framework 2,600 years ago, and it's up to all of us to figure out what does it mean in 2016. You know, we definitely want to know what he said, 
but we also want to reflect on how it can have meaning for us right here and right now. So this is maybe the Four Noble Truths a little bit updated. And I want to say that the Four Noble Truths are about happiness. Aren't they about happiness? They are. They are a uh, prescription for happiness is what they are. So the first noble truth. So the first noble truth is that the opposite of happiness is central to the human condition and it's not personal. The opposite of happiness is central to the human condition and it's not personal. The second noble truth is the main barrier in the path to genuine happiness is the suffering resulting from the craving and aversion mechanism, which follows when the temporariness and inherent lack of satisfaction of hedonism are not understood. So that is the first noble truth and the second noble truth that we are all suffering, it's not personal, it's a human condition, that we're suffering because of uh, tanha, because of craving and clinging. The third noble truth, of course, is that we can be free, that there is wellness to be had, even given the earthly conditions that we're all born into, there is deep wellness to be had. And the fourth is, there's a path to be there's a path to that deep happiness. And I love it that each of the Four Noble Truths has a verb associated with it. They all have verbs, so they're not anything that we're supposed to just believe or, you know, take on as some kind of doctrine. They are things for us to realize ourselves. And... If you're out here suffering at all, if you've been suffering the first day here, the first day and a little bit last night, if you've experienced any suffering, any body suffering, any mental suffering, any suffering related to thoughts of the past or the future, guess what? Congratulations. That's an insight. The first noble truth, the verb associated with it is It is to be fully known. So, if you're taking in just this condition, if you're coming to that realization, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. So, Um, more about dukkha and the dukkha of aging. There's this one teaching of the Buddha that I think is, uh, it's related to the second noble truth, the truth of tanha, or of uh, clinging or craving. And it's a a particular teaching about uh, a concept called mana or conceit. And uh, the Buddha really had a brilliant... 2,600 years ago, he had a very brilliant understanding of what, uh, of what conceit or mana was all about. It's actually quite sophisticated. I think in many ways even more sophisticated than 
how we understand that in modern psychology. So um, Buddha's understanding of uh, conceit, uh, the um, definition of conceit or mana is rather than just thinking that you're better than something, it's actually the um, action of mental measurement. It's measuring ourselves against others. And it, uh, here's the definition of it in the Abhidhamma. Uh, measurement, pride, conceit, a conceptual overlay. Herein, conceit is fancying, fancying. Van, vain imaginings. It has the characteristic of haughtiness as self-praise, haughtiness. Its function is self-promotion and self-exaltation. I love this one. What is its manifestation? The manifestation of conceit is to is the desire to advertise oneself like a banner. How did they know about Facebook? <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> the desire to advertise self like a banner. Narcissism, vainglory. And what is the proximal cause of uh, conceit or measurement? It's actually greed in the mind, and it should be regarded as a form of lunacy. So what's really brilliant about the Buddha's uh, conceptualization of conceit is that we often think that it's just better than, right? Uh, I'm measuring myself, I'm better than you. But actually, he had a much more sophisticated uh, take on it. It's actually better than and worse than and same as. Because you can measure yourself in all those three ways, right? I am better than this person or that person. I am worse than this person or that person. Or I am the same as this person or that person. And you know, I want to, us to explore what does this mean and actually, uh, Anna pointed out something brilliantly about the aging process, that actually oftentimes that person that we measure against is, I know you all know where I'm going with this, our younger selves, right? That's who our measurement is with, our younger selves. So in addition to this uh, better than, worse than, same as, type of measurement, the Buddha also uh, talked about four domains of measurement that I'm just going to briefly mention. Uh, he talked about panyamana, which is uh, knowledge or education conceit, better than, worse than, same as. And he talked about dhanamana, which is uh, Donamana, which is wealth, conceit, better than, worse than, same as, or better than 20 years ago, worse than 20 years ago, same as 20 years ago. 
And then he talked about jatamana, which is birth conceit. You know, this might have us comparing ourselves to a younger version of ourselves or... And then finally, appearance conceit. And I thought I would just... um, And actually, he also makes a list of how we might engage with these. And I thought I would just mention a few of them and explore how they might work for us as we age, what it means. So Mana Conceit. And this is related to this whole concept of this I am. This I am. So the first one would be intelligence. How are, we, how are we relating to our intelligence as we age? In some sense, we might feel that we're better than some other self, some younger self, because maybe we've grown in wisdom. You know, maybe our Dharma practice is starting to show up for us. Or maybe we're feeling that we're kind of losing it in intelligence as well. Our memories aren't working as much as they have in the past. There's a lot of emerging ideas and trends that maybe we're not on top of the way we used to be. Maybe we don't even have a desire to be on top of those things. And how about the mana of being an authority? I know many of you are retired. What did that feel like? To let go of a sense of, a whole sense of work life where you might have been an authority or you had a sense of purpose associated with that. Is there a feeling of uh, less than? less than a younger self around authority or accomplishment. Do we continue to measure our lives or measure ourselves against our younger self or other people around a sense of what we accomplish? I remember when I was um, traveling around the world as a younger person without a solid career You know, it would be so great that I would have two things on my list. I would uh, try to get some laundry done. (laughs) And, you know, maybe check my mail at the post office. Wow. And at that time, you know, that accomplishment was just fine for me. So the question is, you know, what do we have have on our agenda now? What's our project? What's our agenda? We can even ask that on the cushion. I think that's a wonderful thing that we can ask while we're meditating or while we're walking. Is there a hidden agenda or a hidden project that is you know, carrying over from this sense of having to accomplish something or be an authority about something? That might be something we investigate. Um, Other senses of identity of this I am can be related to popularity. 
You know, how big is our circle of friends and acquaintances and family now compared to 10 years ago or 20 years ago? And then of course there's health. Wow, that's a big one. You know, specifically measuring our present self against how our hearing was even five years ago. I know that's a big one for me. What did you say? What? You know, what that means to be always having to say, what did you say? Can you speak a little bit louder? Or, you know, extensive dental work. Or, you know, how many medications are you on for chronic disease management? So the measurement of health, how are we holding that? Is that a real sense of loss for us? Is that a new sense of identity? And then things like being honored and being respected. In some cultures, being uh, getting older, if you have some small amount of wisdom, uh, being older is a very honored and respected place. But I think in our uh, mainstream culture, we're almost invisible. You know, one reason I know is that we don't tend to spend the way we did, you know, in our 30s or 40s and 20s. And so we're not even marketing targets anymore, which is probably a wonderful thing, but... Our prominence. The Buddha said, having adherence. Did we have adherence when we were younger? Did people think that we were special or had something to say? Did we have students that really looked up to us or people that we worked with? Is there a sense of identity or loss of identity around that? And then of course, wealth. I think two or three times a day I'm getting some check your retirement projections from some from some company who wants me to invest with them. It's always wanting me to measure, do I have enough? When can I retire? When can I cut back? One, um, the Buddhist talks specifically about one source of conceit or mana, being tall. How many inches have we all lost? (laughs) Isn't it amazing that our pants are actually too long now? (laughs) My mother, growing up, my mother's 90 years old, and she lives with my sister in Olympia, Washington, and for respite, you know, my sister's always, can you take mom for a month? You know, so I'll take her for a month. It's a lot of work, but... um, and it's amazing, when I was growing up, she was like 5'7 or 5'8, and now she's like 5'3. It's amazing, she's 90 years old. I guess that's what happens. So being tall, bodily proportions and form, 
are sources of measurement and conceit. So for me, it's amazing to me in my meditation, my, 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 me, me, (laughs) it's amazing to me how many of my thoughts are actually uh, me telling myself who I am. Isn't it? We're always measuring. It's like, oh, why is that person doing that? I'm better than that. I'm walking slower than that person. (laughs) I had that thought this morning. Or that person's walking really slow. Maybe I should walk a little bit slower. Or that person is taking a lot of food. I'm not taking that much food. Or that person isn't taking very much food. Maybe I should cut down. So these are all comparisons. Better than, I understand better, I'm smarter, I work harder. Worse than, educated people look down on me, I don't fit in. Equal to, no one deserves special treatment. We are all the same. Sayada Utejaniya says, And, you know, this actually relates to what we expect to get on the cushion as well. What our insight should look like. You know, we have a sense of what insights we should be having or what this experience of meditation should be. You know, maybe based on measurement of past retreats that we've done. You know, I've heard my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, I think it was Joseph talking about, or maybe it was Jack talking about getting, you know, this incredible light, uh, you know, light uh, jhana, probably jhana effect during meditation and then trying two years to get it back. You know, you just are wanting, you know, wanting something that you've had in the past. And this is what Utejaniya says about that. Holding on to a preconceived idea or view of what insight should be like is dangerous as it leads to pride when you have an experience that seems to fit such an idea. The nature of reality is beyond ideas and views. Ideas and views are merely the work of delusion. Wow. So, that's the advice to let go of to let go of what we think needs to be happening for me personally my biggest check in and i'm always assessing how things are going is what's my level of effort we definitely want to be relaxed as possible we want to look at how our mind is holding whatever the object is that we're knowing We want to be relaxed, but we don't want to be too relaxed. We don't want to give up our intention to be present. I think it's a very wholesome intention. So some other measurements that might 
might be nagging at us as we age. Dhanamana, uh, the measurement about wealth. You know, we love big donors to Spirit Rock and IMF. We love big donors to all of the local Dharma retreat centers as well. And sometimes we call them special needs yogis. We love them. And then there's also worse than Donamana. I applied for a scholarship. They are so lucky that I was able to come in and be with all these highly educated rich people, that I have the equanimity to be here. And then the appearance, appearance, better than, better than mana, tall, thin, healthy, young, 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 fat, short, ugly, dark skin, curly hair, old, old, old. And then equal mana around appearance. Even when you're with your dear friends, there's always judgment. I could look as good as that. I look about that age. I could wear that outfit. (laughs) And then when we actually do do a measurement of less than, it always feels, or it often feels like a private failure, doesn't it? It's just us, that we alone, of all beings, were unable to get our lives sorted and discover the secret of lasting happiness. It's our own private failure or problem. Aging can be reflected on as our own private uh, failing or problem. So that's one way that um, the dukkha of aging might show up for us here on, on our retreat. And for me, again, like I was saying, it's always me telling myself these things. It's always in the measurement. It's eyeing and myeing. I am that, that I am. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's an excellent place for reflection or just to notice how much that's happening. Because what happens when we're able to do that, when we're able to really notice eyeing and myeing, you know, panyamana, dhanamana, all of these different manas, to see it, you know, mindfulness gets the frame around it. And actually it can uh, decrease that sense of clinging that's really even unconscious in us. It uh, decreases that sense of clinging And what that opens up is, it lets us see the truth of it, which is our interconnectedness. It lets us see that we're really not the individual alone beings that we think that we are. My favorite analogy right now is of an aspen grove. An aspen grove has a ton of trees and they're all different sizes and they have different branch structures. They might even be different colors, different leaves, different ages. 
And then when you look beneath the grove to the root system, there's only one root. That's my current favorite analogy of when we let go of this clinging of these identities that are often unconscious, we actually, and particularly on retreat like this, you start feeling this really incredible intimacy. This intimacy with people you haven't even talked to for days. It's just, we can really connect with the interconnectedness that's the reality of who we are. But I do have some very specific things to say about how mindfulness specifically transforms dukkha. And I just have a few minutes to say them. First of all, I want to say a word about mindfulness. Um, again, you know, there's a lot of different ways to talk about mindfulness. One of our favorite uh, scholars and practitioners, Analeo Bhikkhu, says that there's like five different kinds of mindfulness now. There's early Buddhist mindfulness. There is uh, Theravada you know, mindfulness, which is probably what we teach and practice here at Spirit Rock, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness. There is um, Tibetan mindfulness, Sochin practice, that some people might be practicing. He talks about that, and he talks about also um, mindfulness-based stress reduction mindfulness, and Zen mindfulness, you know. It's hard, it would be uh, inappropriate to say, well, this is the real mindfulness and that isn't, because that would be just continuing to have preferences and to measure and make judgment. So how does Mindfulness, however we're practicing it, transforms suffering. So here is uh, one way to think about how, um, just a quick uh, description of, another description of dukkha. This is by Christopher Germer, the, uh, one of the gurus of self-compassion practice. He says, look at it this way. The instinctive response to danger, the stress response, consists of fight, flight, or freeze. These three strategies help us survive physically, but when they're applied to our own mental and emotional functioning, we get into trouble. When there is no enemy to defend against, we turn on ourselves. Fight becomes self-criticism. Flight becomes self-isolation and freeze becomes self-absorption, getting locked into our own thoughts. So how does mindfulness change suffering or transform suffering? The first way that mindfulness transforms suffering is that it changes the what. It changes the what of the mind-body process. It changes the content. You know, this is related to that whole idea of, you know, the neuropsychology, um, understanding that, uh, you know, as, um, evolutionary psychology, because, you know, there's always a, 
saber-toothed tiger over in the corner, we were much more prone to look at the negative and the dangerous in our environment than the positive. So that's one way to think about changing the what. That we really look to see how much more happiness and contentment and um, positive qualities that we have in our heart and mind and pay much more attention to them. And actually, this is one of the Buddha's Buddha's biggest instructions for us is that we should know, and this is both in the second foundation of mindfulness and the third, we should know whether, uh, whether the intention in our mind to act in the world or even to, you know, act internally in thoughts and emotions are based on things that are wholesome or things that are not wholesome. You know, when things are based on greed, hatred, and delusion, when there's an intention of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind, and that's what we're acting on, that's not going to bring us or others happiness. That doesn't uh, make for safety for ourselves or others. But when they're based on the opposite of that, on generosity and on... um, on uh, discernment and on uh, friendliness and um, knowing our interconnectedness, then that is going to produce happiness. And so we look for that, you know, and with our mindfulness practice, we look to see what is in our mind at this moment and we weaken the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion by not acting on them and by seeing them clearly with our mindfulness. And we strengthen the forces of the positive qualities by seeing them and having them be the intentions that uh, inform how we're acting in the world. And you know, there's always more than uh, one intention in the mind. There's always, you know, there could be a few good ones and a few not so good ones. But, you know, with mindfulness, we can know what those are and we can, um, we can decide to, to, uh, to go with a positive emotion. So that's the first way that mindfulness um, changes the uh, suffering into happiness by changing the what, how we're consciously allocating our attention. The second way is it changes the how. It changes the how of uh, our mind-body process. This is what uh, Tupton, Toku Tupton Rinpoche says, the moon itself. The human mind has a tendency to manufacture manufacture concepts and beliefs in relationship to things that are inherently transcendental. This often leads us to suffer the old curse of mistaking the finger pointing to the moon for the moon itself. The cause of this mistaken perception is the ego, since the ego's only occupation is to sustain its flimsy existence or world of illusion. It always tries the best to create hindrances to the realization of truth. So this is mindfulness, looking at the difference between being and doing. You know, there's really fancy words for it. Implicational memory and propositional memory, but 
One way to say it is just being and doing. And uh, this is where I love to do this little um, visual I have about uh, our knowledge system. So we have two knowledge systems. All humans have two knowledge systems, maybe more, but two that I'm going to talk about right now. One is our rational left brain conceptual count things and name things, make maps and uh, develop formulas. And our other knowledge system is intuitive awareness. It's intuitive awareness. And um, intuitive awareness uh, works or is, uh, is strengthened through mindfulness. Mindfulness is the data collection system for intuitive awareness but with bare attention. You know, we use noting and maybe we'll use a little word to keep us connected to what's happening in the moment, to knowing what we're knowing in the moment, but it doesn't try to figure stuff out. It doesn't try to figure out the nature of reality through thinking or bringing in theories. It just is looking as closely as possible about uh, mental objects in the mind heart arising and passing away, arising and passing away, and knowing what those mind objects are and what their true nature is. And then, you know, we have our conceptual mind who is just trying to think and figure things out and come to insight through thinking or concepts. And that's not going to happen. Oftentimes what happens is this lovely conceptual mind likes to own the wisdom and insights. And it's like, I know this, uh, you know. I am being kind, I am being wise. I'm fixing things and I'm being busy. And we have to be careful of that. We have to be careful. And that's where the inappropriate striving comes in to get something on the cushion. Uh, and, you know, we don't need to be ashamed of that. That is, that is a common humanity thing. You know, thoughts are to the mind what saliva is to the mouth. <laughs> it just is what it is. And then finally, the third way that mindfulness transforms suffering is through changing the view. Changing the view. So we've changed the what and the how, and now we're going to change the view. And how is that? That is actually through insight, to having insight arise. And this is where you can get a really achy body. I was feeling so achy today. There's a lot of uh, mosquitoes down in the teacher village, and a, a lot of us have a lot of bites. And I think it was that. I was just feeling really achy in the body taken quite a bit of uh, painkillers today. But sitting up here doing this wonderful, this wonderful um, reflection exercise, I was just feeling so happy. It's like I was feeling a pretty good amount of wellness given even a lot of physical discomfort. But of course that will change <laughs> because that's the nature of it. I don't expect it to be like that and I'm actually quite happy when that happens. Being here at Spirit Rock, it's kind of easy for that to happen. I'm sure many of you are feeling that, just being here. But so the third way is through insight. And what we do with insight is we are um, 
investigating our understanding or our view of things. And in this sense that we are posing questions to ourselves without ever expecting a conceptual answer or, you know, getting a conceptual answer and just letting it go. So here's a wonderful quote from uh, Christina Feldman about that. In the face of suffering, the shift from aversion to welcoming, befriending and accepting is the most radical emotional and psychological shift a person can make. It is a shift catalyzed by mindfulness from being a helpless victim or sufferer into being a participant in the healing process. These first steps into understanding the landscape of suffering are also the first steps into the landscape of compassion. So the wisest response are the... um, yeah, the wisest response to suffering, to opening to suffering, is to having compassion arise. And you know what? Compassion feels good. Compassion feels good. So what do we investigate? How might we uh, use this? How might we change our view and have insight using our wonderful mindfulness, Satipatthana practice? Uh, One way to do it is to just um, investigate, you know, as the instructions of the Satipatthana Sutta are, just really investigating this experience at the moment and posing questions to ourselves. Uh, Questions like, what narrative does this experience condition or give rise to? You know, we're in contact with the outside world or in contact with the arising emotion or thought. Oftentimes really very, uh, very faint thoughts that we don't even realize we're having. Faint beliefs that we have in there that we don't even know that we're having. And these give rise to some narrative of eyeing and myeing, or this is mine, this I am, and this is myself to just ask the question, what narrative does this experience give rise to? You know, it could be an aversion to somebody in the hall or something happening on the retreat or a memory, or it could be greed for something. You know, we talk about Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas. Uh, You know, just an aside, I always can see myself coming up with those stories when I have a lot of neutral Vedana, neutral feeling tone. You know, really pleasant feeling tone will keep us kind of interested. Even unpleasant feeling tone, it's a strong enough, um, you know, feeling or experience to have us be interested. There's something to look at. But with neutral feeling tone, check it out. Check out with neutral Vedana, neutral feeling tone whether you start spinning off and giving yourself some uh, entertainment. I mean, it happens with my boyfriend. (laughs) You know, when things are just kind of a little bit boring between us, we start making up stories, right? (laughs) Do you really mean that? Do you really feel that way about me? 
And you know they do. It's just a little bit of excitement or drama to bring some drama into the situation. Maybe I'm the only one that does that. (laughs) So what narrative does this experience condition or give rise to? You know, one very simply is in this moment an object is being known, what is being known in this moment? I mean, that's the definition of mindfulness, knowing what is being known in the moment. And then a reflection, the object arises due to causes and conditions and not my intention. And these are some of my very favorite Uh, investigations to look for these unexamined assumptions uh, in the form of unvoiced thoughts and maybe even voiced thoughts. This is one. Maybe I'm the only one that has it. (laughs) Uh, When something arises, this is the way it will be forever. Or another variant of that is, it's always like this. I see that in myself, particularly when, um, you know, one of my other favorite sayings right now is that we're all perpetrators of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, we're always wagging our finger at other people, or I tend to do that. And boy, I can see all of those same things right here. And when those things arise, you know, my self-pity or my you know, Panya Mana, you know, I'm a college professor, like I am so much smarter than that person. Um, I think that I'm like that all the time, but I'm not like that all the time. Those thoughts and eyeing and mying arise and they have the nature of everything else. They arise based on causes and conditions, they're around for a while and they fall away. And it's really, you know, wonderful to see that, that nothing lasts forever. So that's one uh, unexamined assumption. This is the way it will be forever or whatever this is, is always here. The second one is, for this experience to be okay, it should be pleasant. Right? If, I, if it's not pleasant, I'm not doing it right. According to the Vasudhimaga, there are some really unpleasant things that can happen in meditation that are actually exactly what you want to happen. The first noble truth, to know the first noble truth, if you have to stay in your room and cry for a couple of days, that's not a bad thing. We've all done that. We still do it. I'm going to probably do it later. No. <laughs> um, it's not a bad thing. And, you know, you can think about, you know, some of the most meaningful times in our lives when we've been there for ourselves or for others. They have been in probably some of the most unpleasant times of our lives. You know, I mean, we can have really a lot of wellness even in the face of that. And then finally, the assumption is, another unexamined assumption is... I am making this happen. Or this is happening to me. You know, an insight that comes is just 
how much whatever is arising in this moment, how an absolute lack of control we have over it. It's all based on causes and conditions in the past. And how can we have control over what arises in the future? The only control we have over what arises in the future is the quality of our mind in this moment right now. The quality of our mind right now conditions how things are going to unfold in the future. So, one last quote. Where is it? Oh, here it is. On a, let me this quote. Happiness and pleasure. How do you, how do you pronounce his name? Nisargadatta, thank you. Nisargadatta. Question, what is the difference between happiness and pleasure? Nisargadatta says, pleasure depends on things, happiness does not. Question then, why are we not always happy? As long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and to do things to be happy when in reality it is just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of all sadhana is to reach a point when this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual and ever-present experience. Which experience? The experience of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open space, of being young, of being all the time, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in nothingness, in emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. May it be so for all of us. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.